Welcome back, everybody, to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and Sean Karnikian. Hello, Sean. That's me, Sean Karnikian. Yes, you are. And we're, what are we going to do today, Sean? We're going to do what we do now about 70% of the time, which is cover recent cases from the California Court of Appeal, California Supreme Court, Ninth Circuit, United States Supreme Court. Uh, all fun stuff. but Exciting. Uh, very exciting stuff. Yeah. Lately, we've been doing a number of podcasts with special guests having them talk about themselves, having them talk about important issues in the legal community these days. That's because people people are sick of hearing from us, so they want to hear from other people, more qualified people, right? Uh, I don't know what you're talking about, Sean. I think people like hearing about us, and they like hearing us talk about cases. And that's what we're going to do today, right? We're talking about insurance cases today, and we have four of them. First, we're going to talk about a UCL violation when it comes to pre-application illustrations in a life insurance policy. It's something that comes up often, but it might be violating UCL. Uh, then we're going to talk about choice of law rulings in, uh, in an insurance case and whether or not that applies as collateral estoppel in a subsequent coverage action. And then we're going to talk about the duty to defend a malicious prosecution case. So interesting stuff there. And lastly, we're going to talk about an insurer's appeal of a default in small claims court. So we're working our way back. We're starting with a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal case, and we're working our way down to the uh, small claims courts. Well, it'll be the first time we've covered small claims court, but actually it's an interesting case and you learn something every time you read one of these cases and clearly the fourth DCA published it for a reason. But before we get started with that, um, this is about insurance. We're kind of insurance nerds and we do a lot of insurance cases. So uh, I'm trying to dedicate at least one episode every now and then to recent insurance cases that have come down. And the first one, um, and these cases are no exception, the first one's an insurance case that came out of the Ninth Circuit called Walker versus Life Insurance Company of the Southwest. Yeah, and this has a long, tortured history, but we'll try to simplify it for you. What the main claims here are that that are on issue in the appeal are whether or not pre-application illustrations that come with or, or an advance of you getting a life insurance policy violate California's unfair competition law. And what these what pre-application- exactly is that? Yeah, what yeah, is that's, that? That's a good question. That's So life insurance policies, there, there's a law that says that you're not allowed to advertise life insurance policies uh, beyond what they really are. They're life insurance policies. But a lot of companies try to imply that they're investment vehicles and you get some sort of return on it. And this insurance company here, Life Insurance Company of the Southwest, um, includes Included with marketing materials or pre-application documents, what's called a uh, illustration, a pre-application illustration, which shows what type of return you'd be getting on your investment. And there's a number of issues that come up with that because it sort of deceptively pre- guarantees a sort of value on these insurance policies and guarantees it, which you cannot really guarantee. And again, it violates certain laws because these are not investment vehicles. They are life insurance policies. So that's the issue here. Uh, there's two type of illustrations that would be sent out, ones that were sent out prior to someone applying, and then ones that would be sent out along with the policy after you had applied. So, um, And the question here is whether or not that, uh, that violates the UCL. This kind of had a long tortured history, didn't it, uh, procedurally in the courts? I mean, it's been going on for a long time. Yeah, at some point, the the lower court decertified it. It went up on appeal. It came back. Then the lower court certified it. And and the last time that the lower court certified it, um, it ruled that you can have a class that's narrowly defined as those that received uh, the illustration of the life insurance policy benefits prior to the policy being issued. 
Um, and, the, and the lower court said that- Actually, on or before the date of policy application, That's I think. Right. Yeah. And the reason for that is it was an inducement, right? As opposed to you already bought the policy, you have the policy, and now they're showing you all the fabulous things the policy can do. The court found that, good or bad, they found that to be not actionable. I will tell you that in life insurance, an awful lot of cases, bad faith insurance cases, swirl around life insurance cases being a misrepresentation of a vehicle as an investment. You'll be able to never have to pay another dime. It'll pay your premiums. It, you'll, it, it, you know, at age 65, you can cash this out for a bazillion dollars. You know how much a bazillion dollars is, Sean? I don't. How much yeah. is that? You'll never know. <laughs> it's a fake number, yeah. Um, so anyway, so the the lower court narrowly defines that class and grants class certification. So both sides are appealing here. The the class wants to broaden broaden the class definition, and the insurance company, of course, wants to decertify the complete class or wants so, to reverse that. So let's dis- let's dispose quickly, but it is a good procedural rule of why the um, the plaintiff, the class. Uh, didn't have the right to appeal. The court said that the plaintiff should have sought to appeal the district court's order on August 14th, but apparently they believed that it was told or something like that because they had more time because of a motion to reconsider. And it's always that little tricky issue about the motion to reconsider not necessarily tolling your time to file a writ or a petition or, or an appeal, right? Yeah, and that's the case here. And that's also the case. I think Brian and I recently covered a case uh, where it's the same thing in state court. If you have summary judgment granted and you're seeking reconsideration or summary adjudication and you want reconsideration, that doesn't toll your time for uh, taking a writ or uh, appealing that ruling. So that's why the plaintiff can't. But but either way, the defendant wants to have this appeal because the defendant wants to reverse the class certification ruling. Um, and here the court looks at the, the main issue that the court is focusing on is uh, exposure, whether or not the uh, pre-application uh, illustration was uh, disseminated to the entire class and whether the class was exposed to it. And in ruling that the, cl- the in certifying the class, the lower court effectively created a presumption of reliance. And the Court of Appeal says that the court is allowed to do that. We don't need to require uh, plaintiffs in these types of cases to establish exposure on individual level. There, there does not have to be an individual inquiry. And the Court of Appeal says, yeah, we know that this might automatically give a rise to a presumption of reliance um, because you're saying, well, everyone's seen it, therefore they've all relied on it, but that's okay. We don't need the rule 23 rules of class certification don't require explicitly establishing that every single member of the class received the document and relied on it. So that's, and I that's, think the, that's the right rule because, you know, we get into these false advertising claims and the defense that the defendant has in any kind of false advertising claim is, um, well, you're going to have to prove that people actually relied on it. Well, why did you put it in your advertisement in the first place? Yeah. And so I think that's the right rule. I think there should be a presumption. The the important case here that the court cites is a case called Briseno versus Conagra Foods from 2017, another Ninth Circuit case that basically says, well, not basically, it, it literally says Rule 23 neither provides nor implies that demonstrating an administratively feasible way to identify class members is a prerequisite to class certification. So you have you see this a lot, especially in, in state court and cases we've covered recently uh, that the defendants argue, well, no, it's impossible 
impossible to identify who actually falls into this. And it has to be an individualized inquiry. So too bad, so sad. We're too, we're too big to be sued in a class action. And this Bresenio case says that, no, that that's not true. Rule 23 does not require uh, an administratively feasible way to identify class members. Um, albeit the, the lower court here misapplied some element of the Brasenio case, but the uh, court of Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal says that's okay. You know they didn't totally misconstrue it, and it wasn't enough to be considered error on the court's part. So, so they, they affirm it. So life insurance cases, you're always looking for misrepresentations at the outset on a sale on a sale of the product, particularly in class cases. Obviously, other types of life insurance cases exist out there, uh, but that's one to look for. So next case we're going to cover today, I think, is a really, really interesting case involving choice of law and the trigger under a liability policy, which is probably one of the most difficult issues that people have to comprehend in California insurance law. Uh, this case is called Textron versus Travelers out of the Second District Court of Appeal in California. And uh, this case, the underlying case that gave rise to this insurance dispute between Textron, who's the insured, and Travelers, who's the insurance company, uh, was a mesothelioma case where I guess the, the plaintiff in that case had been exposed to asbestos through her mother. Her mother worked for Textron. And her mother um, brought it home and she developed mesothelioma, which is obviously horrible and terrible. And ultimately, that case settled uh, in 2011 for $2.4 million with an agreement that travelers and um, Textron were going to litigate the coverage. And so what really came out of this case, and then I'll throw it to you to explain a little bit more detail, but what really came out of this case was the conflict of what's called the trigger for liability coverage under these type of policies. And some states have a manifestation trigger, which basically says that when the damage manifests itself in the way of discoverable or reasonable uh, diligence would have been discoverable injury, the policy would be triggered. And the other rule, which California follows, is called the contiguous continuous trigger, which basically means that all policies, um, while the person is getting sick or ill, can be triggered. And so there's lots of different ways. It's not just personal injury. It can be in um, pollution cases. But here, this was clearly in, in, in um, a, a ex- the example of a mesothelioma case, and travelers was arguing our policy wasn't triggered. And they went more step than that. They said, there was a decision in Rhode Island in 1991 where travelers and Textron litigated this issue, and it was determined that it was a manifestation trigger and that their policy wouldn't be triggered. Right. So they they kind of go back to that Rhode Island case from 24 years ago in um, 1991, where uh, the court there found that Rhode Island law covers uh, or governs in terms of which trigger rule to go with. And over there was the manifestation trigger rule, obviously. And they argued that, look, similar issues were brought up there. Those were mesothelioma cases as well. There was a number of cases. It included California cases. And the court there decided Decided that the Rhode Island trigger rules and the Rhode Island uh, Rhode Island law would apply, and they're trying to basically make a uh, a ju- judicial well collateral estoppel or res judicata argument, and saying this issue's already been litigated. And the court here ultimately says that 
no, that issue, this issue was not litigated in Rhode Island back then, and it could not have been litigated in Rhode Island back then. That was a set of coordinated cases, and for the sake of convenience, that court was deciding uh, which trigger rule should apply. Over here, over here, we'd have to apply a conflict of law analysis, which which is a kind of four-step process. It looks at what the law of each state is and the uh, potential conflict. And if there is a difference, the next step is to look at which state has examine each state's interests in applying its own law. And then the third step is if the court finds that there's a true conflict, you look at the nature and strength of the interest of each jurisdiction. And over here, clearly, this is a California plaintiff. Uh, you, you have a you have a California plaintiff that got injured in the underlying case, and this the whole dispute, the underlying issue arises in California. So they say that we were going to have to look at Textron's activities in California and therefore the California, um, the continuous trigger rule should apply. Right. I mean, what they ultimately said was this was a California issue with California residents, with California litigation. So California's contiguous continuous trigger and that issue under the principles of collateral estoppel or issue preclusion had not actually been decided in the uh, in the prior action in um, Rhode Island, the the legal mecca of Rhode Island. Apologies yeah, and, and, and I, I, and Rhode I Island. Have, I might have even misspoken um, that the trigger you? issue. Yeah, yeah, even I misspeak sometimes. No, but the trigger issue was not even litigated in 1991 in the Rhode Island uh, in that in that case that was decided in Rhode Island. So that wasn't even an issue. It's a totally different set of facts. Yeah, they just simply they just simply assumed that it was the manifestation trigger, not the contiguous trigger. So that was the end of that. But here, I want to use a case that they cite, a case called Stonewall. Yeah, and um, it, it's the case of Stonewall <clears throat> involved. The following fact pattern, a a California jury comes back with punitive damages against the insured, and the insured turns around, and they're a Wisconsin corporation. They say Wisconsin law should apply even though the cause of action arose in California, the punitive damages were awarded in California, right? And here's the important point. Wisconsin law allows you to insure for punitive damages. California does not, and there's a strong public policy reason why you can't uh, insure punitive damages. I mean, can you imagine if punitive damages would be insured? What certain people we know, Sean, would do with that? <coughs> Sean, did we lose you? Sean, did we lose you? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. Sorry, I had a technical difficulty for a second. Yeah, punitive damages can't be insured because otherwise you'd take out a big umbrella policy and you'd go out and punch someone in the face and go, I punched him in the face. Let's pay that guy. And you could have all kinds of, you know, uh, kind of backroom dealings there and, and you get covered for intentional No, but apparently, apparently I could go to Wisconsin, take out a policy right. like that, and then punch somebody in Wisconsin. But but that's not a real issue because it would require people going to Wisconsin, and we know that that's not going to happen. Now we've insulted Rhode Island and Wisconsin. Actually, I think Wisconsin and Rhode Island are lovely places. I want you to know that if you're from there or listening and you're in Rhode Island or Wisconsin right now, you're terrific. So we think a lot of sure. you. But that the important issue is you. That's why choice of law and the, the the issues with respect to choice of law come into play, and that's why California law applies. Okay, so should we go to our next case shot? Our next case is Travelers versus KLA Tencor Corporation. This has to do with the duty to defend a malicious prosecution action. This also has a somewhat twisted, uh, tortured history. But, yes, it but, does. 
But at the end of the day, what, what's happening here is KLA Tencore is a company that develops some sort of product. And at some point, uh, there was a Walker process claim brought against them. And Walker process claim is, uh, is an allegation that uh, someone that has a patent fraudulently procured that patent from the uh, PTO, from the Patent and Trademark Office. And they get they, this action is brought against them by one of their, I presume, competitors. And KLA argues that travelers should cover them, and travelers claims that it, it's not covered under their policy. And the relevant section here is the personal and advertising injury liability section of the policy, which I believe, Brian, you were saying was the, uh, is that coverage B typically under liability policies? Sometimes it's referred to as coverage B under liability policy. That's correct. Right. Right. And and um, the argument here is that um, Travelers is arguing that, look, this isn't necessarily malicious prosecution. It doesn't arise out of an, ab- of, of an abusive process type of claim. This isn't like you're being sued for somebody, for you suing somebody or making improper claims against somebody or anything like that. Um, and the main argument that gets litigated here is whether or not malicious prosecution, that provision in the policy, is ambiguous. And why is ambiguity so important under California law, Brian? So ambiguity is something important to understand under California law. When I was a very young lawyer, the rule generally defaulted to any ambiguity was construed in favor of the policyholder. And as cases have evolved, that's not really the rule anymore. I mean, the first thing you have to look at is to determine whether the language, given its what they refer to as clear and explicit or plain and ordinary meaning, would what would it mean? What does it say? Does it say what it says? And does it mean what it says? And that's the first level. And if you look at that and you get to that point where you say, hey, you know, we're looking at this and we're trying to um, interpret it and we can't really interpret it, then you look to whether or not in the ordinary course of, of dealing with this language be understood. And if you don't get to that, you then would get to the ambiguity issue about whether the policy language is ambiguous. And if it is ambiguous, it is a question of law if it is ambiguous. It's not a jury question. The interpretation of the contract is left to the court. And it's really determined to the court to make a determination if under the facts and circumstances. So it's it's a it's a much more difficult process to get through than it just being subjectively ambiguous to the insured as it was probably 30 years ago or so. So here, KLA says, hey, it's ambiguous because you've got this uh, Walker process in the, in the PTO office, and it isn't really malicious prosecution. Uh, and so it's, it's different or it doesn't apply or the exclusion doesn't apply. And what was the court's response to that? They said, no, just because, and, and you made an excellent point of, um, a minute ago, which is kind of rare, uh, but you said it doesn't matter what the subjective understanding is of the insured, just because it's subjectively ambiguous to the insured doesn't matter. And KLA says, well, we didn't understand what this meant. And um, there's another case that found that malicious prosecution, th- that term in that policy was ambiguous. Therefore, it's ambiguous here. And you should construe it to be ambiguous. And you should look at this and say that the Walker process claims are encompassed. And the court says, no, they're not objectively ambiguous. Over here, it's pretty clear what uh, what malicious prosecution is. It includes abusive process types of claims. And it says that here, the Walker process claim is not premised on a legal action or a legal proceeding. It doesn't arise out of you uh, suing someone wrongfully or in violation of their rights. It arises out of you making a fraudulent application, uh, an allegedly fraudulent application to the PTO. That's not the same as an abusive process claim. It's not a legal proceeding. 
And I say, just because you believed it was ambiguous doesn't mean that it is ambiguous. And we have to look at it objectively. And that's how they look at it. And, and I think that's the main takeaway from this case, that you have to right. look at whether or not objectively ambiguous. Right. And and they the court said coverage language could be ambiguous when it's capable of two or more reasonable constructions. And that's objectively reasonable in, uh, construction language, along with the objective reasonable expectations of the assured. And here they said it's not reasonable for the insured to think they would be covered for this PTO action or Walker action or whatever the, the case may be. So the real takeaway from this is is understand ambiguity rules before you start arguing ambiguities in in the courts. Let's go to our last case shot, which is taking a trip to the small claims court. Very exciting stuff. Yeah. So uh, don't mind my dog barking in the background. This is how we do things now in the COVID-19 era. But this is uh, Pacific Pioneer Insurance Company versus uh, Superior Court. uh, And the real party interested is Vanessa Gonzalez. So Vanessa Gonzalez was injured in a, uh, I believe it was an auto accident. And uh, she brought a claim against an insured named Jonathan Johnson in small claims court. He defaulted. Yeah, interesting name, Jonathan Johnson. And Jonathan Johnson defaulted. He didn't show up. So the small claims court entered default against him for $10,000 plus $140 in costs. And now his insurance company found out about it, and they filed a timely notice of appeal. And after a small claims judgment, you get a de novo appeal. Is that right, Brian? Yeah, basically a de novo appeal. But here's the interesting thing about this, because it shows how little we know about small claims court. Um if you do not have the right to a de novo appeal if you don't show up. So high, you know, high expectation that you're actually going to show up at the at the small claims hearing. Otherwise, right. they can find default against you, right? Yeah. Yeah. But conflicting with that is, and we're all talking about CCP section 116.710, the small claims rules. And I'm sure at this point most of our listeners are going, why am I listening to a small claims case? Well, I think it's important to understand what goes on in the small claims court and how these things work. And, and I think it's also important to understand, as we didn't, that an insurance company has the right under um, that section that I just said, cited to appeal if the judgment is over $2,500. So they can appeal if it's more than $2,500 themselves in their own name. That's right. And now uh, the court does a very interesting thing here. They summarize Gonzalez's argument here. They say that while subdivision C of that section uh, of 116.710 giveth a right to appeal, uh, then subdivision D taketh it away by restricting that right to only those cases where the defendant appears. So Gonzalez here is arguing that, look, yeah, there's a right to appeal, sure, but that's only if the defendant appears. And the court here makes the distinction between a defendant and the insurance company. It's not like the insurance company defaulted. Right, and here's where it's it's important for everybody's understanding their practice, is that insurance code section 11580 will allow a direct action against an insurance company by a judgment creditor. So uh, Sean sues me. Um, The case goes to trial. He gets a million-dollar judgment against me. It'll never happen, but just assume it did. Uh, And it was covered by my insurance. He now has the right to go after my insurance company to collect that money. He doesn't have to wait on me to enforce the claim against my own insurance company. So what happened here and what happens all the time, it's just this happens to be in a small claims case, is that the plaintiff in the underlying small claims case turned around the insurance company and said, pay me my money, give me my money, and they appealed. 
And under 11.580, you would typically have that right. You would have the right to, to pursue it. But the fact that um, the statute gives a explicit carve out for an insurance company to appeal any judgment over $2,500, so the legislature clearly thought about it, means that um, the carrier had the, the right to file this appeal. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's good to know this because it's good to know the principle that you can go collect against the insurance company if you're a judgment creditor. And, and all kidding aside, yeah, this is in small claims court, but we know that a lot of practitioners out there are helping clients who might have smaller, uh, smaller liability, smaller damage cases that might start out in small claims court and then they might choose to uh, litigate it against the insurance company afterwards if it's bigger. So, so some stuff. of the important takeaway here, Sean, is when you do get small, sued in small claims court, you must show up because you won't have the right of an appeal. That's no, that's number takeaway number one. Takeaway number two is that if it's your insurance company that um, is backing you up and you decide not to show, your insurance company is still going to have the right to um, appeal. And takeaway number three from this case is that uh, people do have the only direct right of action that a third party has against an insurance company, at least the only one I can think of right now is under 11.580, post-judgment as a judgment creditor but all good stuff. So Sean, thank you for uh, being with us today and helping me out with this podcast on these insurance cases. We'll have more in the future. Uh, I'm sure that's exciting for most folks. You can find us where? Uh, you can find us at kbklawyers.com. We're trying to put on more and more of these podcasts. If you have questions about insurance or anything else we, we talk about, feel free to reach out. We're handling a lot of uh, business interruption cases as a result of COVID-19. If you're working on those, we're interested in talking to you. If you have clients that are affected by this, we'd be happy to help advise you. We'd be happy to look at policies. So reach out to us. We love hearing from you. And thanks for tuning in.